Over the past two years, I've been doing an executive MBA through UCT's Graduate School of Business. I've found it to be an immensely transformative journey. As a result of the course transitioning into a virtual course, I didn't get much personal connection time with my fellow students. I was intrigued by many of their research topics, and in this podcast, I explore how fellow students experienced the course and what they chose to research and how that impacted their lives. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the studio. So nice to see you again. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Petra. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. So we've both went on this amazing journey over the last two years of doing an executive MBA through the University of Cape Town's Business School. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Who are you and why did you decide to do this EMBA? I am an engineer by training. I studied at UCT, uh, graduated in 2005. And since then, I've worked for one uh, company that's gone through a couple of different owners. It started as a small, almost family-owned type business, uh, a couple of owners. It was eventually bought by a bigger group and then by an even bigger group. And I enjoyed the opportunities that it provided as an engineer and growing in management skills. Uh, and I just felt that I needed to just broaden my horizons. I'd been with, with the same company for 13 years. And I needed to either, if I was going to stay with the company, be able to bring in some new ideas or take new ideas elsewhere and see what else was out there. So you were using it as a sort of a transformation journey for yourself? I think so, yeah. To see, you know, am I am I still on the right path for myself or do I need to look at other options? And if I'm on the right path for myself, am I adding as much value as I could be to my organization and to the other members of it? So what did you find most useful in the last two years during this MBA? Partly the discipline that it demanded. Also, I have to say, in the context of COVID, it, it was a nice, almost distraction, you know, to something that was kind of constant as the rest of the world was changing and work was in flux. Uh, there were deadlines that were still there. There were assignments that had to be done. There were readings that had to be done. And there was a consistent course that you know, followed the, the course program that we'd got from the beginning, although it transitioned from an in-person to an online program. Uh, it was amazingly transitioned by, by the team at UCT. So yeah, I actually found almost a bit of a comfort uh, during that time. And then in terms of the learning, the self-learning, which I believe I haven't fully uh, enacted yet, and I hope to <laughs> through the rest of my life, but I think that's that's really the, the most valuable lessons I got out of it was, yeah, we need to understand ourselves if we want to understand organizations and have influence in organizations. Yeah, I think I got a really long reading list out of it, which I still have to follow up on because you're so in the moment the whole time. You've got deadlines and assignments to do and you don't actually get to reading everything that you hear about in class. And I've made a long list for myself of things that still need to be read and be followed up on. So yeah, that was that's what I got out of it um, or what I'm going to be following up on. Our entire EMBA journey culminates then in us doing a research project at the end. So how did you decide what you were going to do your research on? So I, th I think I may have told you the story before. I went to dinner once, probably about eight years ago, nine years ago, when I was in Joburg with staying with some family. And uh, the rest of the family at the table and I, all discussing our work, it just hit me suddenly that all of us were doing a career that we'd studied for, that we wanted to be doing. You know, we were accountants and in insurance, and I was an engineer. And we were all working for companies that were making a bit of a difference. You know, no one was doing anything terrible. The companies weren't unethical. And we each had a fair bit of autonomy in our, in our jobs. We weren't at the lowest run. And yet we were all incredibly frustrated by organization. We all wanted to see our organizations do better. 
and yet we all felt misheard or you're not understood uh, and just frustrated in, in what you're doing. And it just struck me that surely there must be a better way for employees to feel, uh, not only for ourselves that we, you know, in regards to dinner, we're not griping about our job, but also for organizations. Surely we would be better in our organizations, more effective and more motivated if we were feeling positive about it instead of seeing all this negativity. So that was actually one of the things uh, that also one of the factors that made me want to do the EMBA was, you know, is there a way to make organizations better, whether it's my current one or, or other ones? Uh, and then you know, when it came to my study topic, I said, choose something close to your heart. And so I was a little bit worried that I was veering into sociology, but I, I stuck with it. And, and definitely, I think it's, it's uh, been a, an interesting business topic. So what was the title of your dissertation? My title was ultimately Improving Happiness at Work. Uh, what leaders can do and why they should do it. And did you do some research up front just to get a layer foundation? Did you do like a literature study and, and what did you find as a result of that? So I did literature review throughout the whole assignment through the six months that I was putting the paper together. Um, at the beginning, my supervisor asked me, okay, but what do you mean by happiness? Which stumped me for a little while. And then I started my literature review there and that, that got a bit complex and uh, overwhelmed me for a bit. Because it's been studied for thousands of years you know, across the globe and across civilizations. It's something that humans really want to understand is what is happiness and how do we achieve it? And so I started my literature review there and I came up with sort of two general uh, points on happiness, eudemic, eudaimonic happiness, which is where you see happiness as like an end goal of a continuous journey, potentially a life journey of realizing what are your talents and how can you use them most effectively to the greater good. And then hedonic happiness, which is more linked to immediate pleasure and uh, immediate uh, satisfaction. And so so that was the first part of my literature review, which happened up front. Uh, and then as I got more into the topic, I found a couple of papers on happiness at work. But it is a, a topic that hasn't been fully researched by that name. Uh, up until now, a lot of research has focused on the negative sort of feelings uh, in health and at, in the workplace. And then when they started looking at positive feelings at work, uh, they were more interested in the positive outcomes, so engagement, job satisfaction, things that really matter more to the company uh, and are directly measurable potentially by the company than related to the individual. So how did you decide or what research methodology did you follow? I mean, it's interesting to us what we did as, as students. Um, so can you briefly just tell me how you did your research? So I, I was structuring the course. You, you mentioned other things that came out during the course, and I now I'm dancing a little bit around in my answers. But there were so many things that popped up during the course that I wanted to explore further, and uh, one of those was design science, uh, which is kind of based on the premise that the world consists of natural uh, phenomena and artificial elements, which are created or designed by humans. And an artificial element can be made up of natural parts. So like a, a Kirstenbosch uh, National Botanical Garden in Cape Town is made up of natural plants and trees, but the design of it is, is human. It's laid out by humans um, with a particular design. So the science of the artificial world, which was introduced uh, by Herbert Simon, says that you know, we can it's human designed and so humans can improve it. And I see organizations as that. You know, humans create organizations and therefore humans can improve organizations. So I started with the design science framework, which is a fairly broad framework. It's not a very tight research methodology, but it gives a, an outline of kind of assessing the problem, defining the problem, and then looking at various options to improve it, and then testing those options. 
So when I started with the interviews, I realized that this was an incredibly uh, human phenomenon that I was trying to study this happiness. And really the definition of happiness that mattered for each interview was the individual's understanding of happiness. And so I decided to use a, a, an approach called phenomenology, which is a bit of a philosophy and a research methodology. And it entails interviewing people or interviewing texts and trying to understand the, the real essence of an experience uh, that occurs before somebody interprets it and, and describes it, which is difficult because you're trying to understand that through the interpretation and the description of the, the individual that has described it. But it, basically through the interviews then, I wanted to understand the real life happenings at work that made people feel happy or feel unhappy uh, and uh, so that those could be repeated. Yeah, I think we could probably do a whole podcast on phenomenology because I use the same research methodology and it just... Once I engaged with it, realized that if I'd ever studied a sociology type degree, I would have probably done that. <laughs> but then I, I was also sort of a my past uh, research is very scientific as well. But it's just a beautiful way of looking at the world, trying to understand what people are meaning, how they're experiencing the world and um, through their eyes and trying to interpret that. It's a wonderful way of to understand how people are experiencing the same world we're living in. Yeah, and, and I found that there were so many things that really sparked with me. I won't go into too much detail, but things like language, you know, and how we describe things with language. And so we're limited by our language. There, you know, there are a lot of texts, including the some of the texts by von Mahnen, where he describes phenomenology, where he talks about the German word that was originally used by Heidegger and Hussle, who sort of introduced phenomenology, and how there isn't an English word that explicitly or, or completely represents that German word. And, and I found that quite interesting, that you know, there are things that we almost can't experience because we don't have the words to explain what we're experiencing. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed using that research methodology. So at the end of all of that, you've done your interviews. Um, what did you find out? Yeah, as I say, when I started, I started wondering, yeah, am I doing sociology? Am I doing philosophy? And I thought, yeah, how can I use this thesis? I do want to go into business. I do want to improve uh, business organizations. How can I make sure that this provides that that entry ticket. And so in my literature review, I, I read up about where happiness at work has been studied, how has it affected organizations. And in my interviews with, with people, I started with a very open question, just saying, in your work experience, whether it's at your current job or previous jobs, can you describe an experience or a period in your life where you were particularly happy or particularly unhappy at work? So happiness, their, their base level was their kind of interpretation and the particularly happy or particularly unhappy was also based on their interpretation. And I did about 22 interviews. Each person described sort of two to four experiences, happy and unhappy. And what was amazing for me was how their personal accounts matched the literature. So the literature said to me that uh, happy employees are more motivated. Uh, they are absent less. They want to stay with the organization more. They'll go out of the way to work more for the organization uh, money becomes less important, your know, financial reward. And I found exactly that in the interviews through very personal uh, descriptions. So one interviewee said to me, you know, in a previous job where they weren't very happy, they would take the odd sick day when they weren't quite sick. You know, and that's absenteeism in a very personal human expression. And, and she said, you know, in her job now, she will work on weekends uh, without being paid. She just wants to see the organization succeed. So that was... Um, the, one of the most uh, amazing things or one of the most sort of beneficial things I think for my research was to to prove that 
although I'm looking at human uh, employee happiness, it really does have better benefits to organizations and leaders should invest in it. And then the other interesting thing was how of those, say, 80 or 100 experiences that were described, every single one of them was a more eudaimonic type experience than a hedonic happiness. So nobody told me that they were happy one day when they got a huge raise or when they got a big promotion. Some people did say to me that they were happy that their company gives raises uh, incrementally uh, and bases it on their their achievements during that quarter or during that uh, um, half a year. So yeah, it wasn't the financial, the financial reward didn't make them happy for the financial sake, it was for the recognition. So I came up with around seven human emotions that we want to have met and about 20 odd sort of experiences, type of experiences that contribute to those emotions. And uh, the, probably the biggest emotion or most, uh, the, the emotion that was affected most and affected happiness most was purpose and authenticity, where people, again, tied to eudaimonic experiences of happiness, where people felt that their purpose was aligned with the company's purpose and that what they were doing each day was aligned with that purpose and, and furthering the interests of the company. Uh, they were much more motivated at work. They were much happier at work. They, they got an additional level of happiness beyond just doing a good job uh, and enjoying the, the parts of the job. And some of the other, there were so many insights, we could spend a few hours talking about this <laughs> this, this topic. But um, and another one was how where people are unhappy, it doesn't actually matter how much money you, you pay them. Uh, people that I spoke to left jobs to go to lower paying jobs. They left jobs to go to no job. They moved back in with their parents because they didn't have a job and they just couldn't handle being unhappy at work. So I think those were two of the, the, the most amazing uh, things, but I'll, I'll come back to some more later if, I, if they come back to me. So you've done all of this research and spent six months of your life on it. So what? I mean, what are you going to do with all of this information? How do we make it practical? So, Petra, through the six months and, and through even the course, I was thinking of this question, so what am I going to do afterwards? And the thesis really answered that by saying I need to be improving happiness at work in organizations. It's one of the reasons why I did the course was could there be a better way of working? And definitely through my thesis, I found, yes, there are ways that we can make work happier for the employees and for the leaders as well. And so I would like to use the content that I've got here to teach other people how to make themselves happy and how to make their employees happier. One of the big things that came out in the study as well is how important your immediate supervisor or leader is in your happiness at work. And as a leader, how much influence you have on the happiness of the employees that report to you and their, their sort of direct reports and, and distant reports, but particularly that direct relationship between a, a manager or a team leader and their direct reports is crucially important. Uh, it can overshadow unhappiness with other factors of the organization or other people. A leader is, is really can be very effective in helping employees understand what their purpose is and how it aligns with the organization. Uh, and so we really have a lot of influence as leaders over something beyond just the, the performance of our company, but your true happiness in people's lives. I think I read it somewhere that people don't leave organizations, they leave their managers. 
I think that ties in nicely with what you're saying is that your, if I think of any of the culture surveys within our company, it always comes up out that the person who's got the most influence over your life or your happiness at work is your supervisor. That is the person who really you connect to with most. So at, it sort of ties in with my own personal experience, but you've got 22 other leaders who say the same thing, which I think is, is good. So what else are you going to do with this information? So I'm thinking that, you know, many organizations, leaders kind of are just chosen from individuals within the organization, not necessarily based on leadership capability or leadership skills, uh, but because they've either been there longest or because they're the best accountant or best engineer. And often those people are, are put into a position where they are now managing a team and then that's it. And, you know, what the company often cares about is the performance of that team. Uh, as accountants or as engineers, and they don't look at the soft side. And what came out uh, you know, through what I've spoken about, through the eudaimonic experiences that people spoke about, through the actions of the leaders, through that purpose, is that it goes beyond the you know, the day-to-day tasks of accountants or lawyers and how they do the job, the relationships they form at work while they're doing the job become incredibly important. And so leaders, when they put in that position, need to be trained on how to develop that. And often I, f- I feel they don't. So while I'd like to talk immediately to CEOs and change massive organizations, I think the first entry point for me is looking at um, recent managers and training them on just making them aware. Uh, yeah, there are things that I really wasn't aware of that affect people's happiness at work uh, that I became aware of through this, that I can teach people and help them to engage with their uh, direct reports or employees or team members uh, more effectively, understand them better and help them to be better employees. You mentioned uh, about how leaders have an impact on life. And, you know, it's also always struck me you know, for, for years. We know we spend most of our waking hours at work and what happens at work, you know, we take home. We're, we're not robots. And so if, if you have a bad day at work, you take it home on your family, uh, to your kids, to your, to your partner. Uh, and so by improving people's happiness at work, we actually really can be improving people's happiness in life. And I think, you know, a lot of the lessons we learned as a result of this EMBA is exactly that. You know, I think we've become much more aware of the impact that you have on people around you. Um, a lot of our courses that we did on mindfulness and Chris Breen, if you think of that, you know, is about just letting go of just being more aware of the people around you and, and your impact on them. Yeah. My podcast name is on change. So it's all around change. And I wanted to ask you, how has this last two years of the EMBA changed you personally? It's really made me question how I experience things. I mean, really it's at a deep level and it's almost provoked a bit of anxiety sometimes because the world that I was kind of existing in and operating in is not the real world. I realize now that that's just a perspective. It's my perspective of, of that world. And it's based on how I'm currently feeling and the memories that are triggered by what happens. And what I find now is that everything that happens, I'm not questioning and wondering, yeah, am I seeing it from the correct perspective or is there another perspective? Often I'm doing that after the fact and then regretting that I didn't do it at the moment um, because I still need to, uh, as I say, sort of really uh, enact some of those lessons that we learned from Chris Breen and Linda on how to really ground ourselves. There's so much that we miss because we are concentrating, like even, yeah, I've been doing doing this podcast on the, sometimes of concentrating on what the next question might be and not living in the moment. Uh, And so I have learned to appreciate more your life as it is, but 
it's sometimes retroactive. And I, and I realize I need to learn more about how to really exist moment to moment. I think what, one of the messages that came through for me quite strongly as a result of the, the course is the whole concept around hinge moments. You know, sort of in the moment realizing, oh, I'm here. Um, something's happening in this moment. How do I react to this? And what course am I going to choose? Am I going to choose to be the more accepting and listening type person or am I going to um, react in, in a negative way, which I shouldn't? And I, and I think that's sort of just being aware in the moment of where I am and what's going on around me. Um, so I think that for me was quite interesting. Actually, one of the quotes that I've most remember ever writing down was a quote by Viktor Frankl that Chris Breen uh, mentioned, which was about the hinge moments, about how between a stimulus and response, there's a pause. And in that pause lies our opportunity to choose our response. Uh, and in that choice lies our opportunity for growth. I don't know if I've got it word for word. But yeah, it was also it was one of the most difficult reflective uh, exercises that I did when we did that between some of the modules was trying to catch those moments and then also fighting the response because I would sometimes catch them, but I still think I'm justified in reacting the way I want to react because of something that happened 20 years ago or all those other things. So, yeah, learning to recognize those moments and then having the, the will to, to change my response. So we've went through your research and, and how the course has changed you. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up that you haven't touched on yet, some message you'd like to put out there? So I think one thing I just wanted to mention was when we were discussing some of the findings, uh, and I was overwhelmed with a couple of them, like the fact that people really remember the the big long-term experiences, the eudaimonic happiness rather than hedonic immediate pleasure, and the power of purpose in their lives and the power of leaders. I think one of the biggest uh, sort of interesting findings that came out of the study was that we've got these, what I had labeled, mediating emotions, which is what people are kind of seeking to to meet. And so those I found were... They want authenticity uh, in themselves and in their leaders. They detect very quickly if a leader or an organization is not authentic. And they want purpose, as, as I mentioned. And then they also they want to feel supported. Uh, they want to feel trusted by their, their superiors and by their organizations. Uh, they want to feel valued uh, and uh, they want to feel appreciated. They want an opportunity for growth. Uh, not just in their career, but in their personal sort of skills uh, and development as well. And then the one thing that really caused unhappiness across almost all the unhappy experiences that, that were described to me was uncertainty. People don't like uncertainty. And so as leaders, even if there's something unpleasant, if we can be upfront about it and honest and transparent with, with our organizations, with our employees, with our suppliers, customers, um, everyone, then really that can remove a lot of unhappiness. So that was, that was for me quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, in the last two years have been very uncertain. So how do you remain or provide some sort of certainty in an environment, in a world that's really uncertain at this point in time? Although I don't think it's going to get any more certain going into the future. Um, it's sort of probably creating those little islands of sanity that Chris Breen talked about, you know, within a very, very uncertain world, how do we create some sort of island of sanity within the organization that we're working in so that people can feel valued and, and purposeful uh, in what they're doing? I, th I think so. I think as, as leaders, if, if we can provide confidence in uncertainty and also help 
And I think that's something that leaders have actually been learning. Uh, that, that, yeah, the world has been changing the last two years and showing that leaders don't don't need to be right all the time. They don't need to have all the answers all the time. But if they can be confident that there will be a way out of this, uh, that they are working to find a way out of this and with the, with the team members to find a way out of it and saying that it's okay to be a bit uncertain, to be anxious in the uncertainty, uh, that is natural. And because I think that what happens with anxiety and with uncertainty is it becomes a downward spiral as well. And then you, you kind of get lost. And so if you just have somebody saying, we're not certain, it could go either way. This is what we're preparing for in case it goes this way. This is what we're looking at in case it goes that way. Uh, and whatever way it goes, we will help you through it. I think that's all we as leaders can do. Yeah. So, so you've been studying happiness for the last six months. So can I ask you whether you feel happier now? I do. I think that what this thesis did was solidify for me my purpose. And um, as I found in my interviews, people are happier when they have a purpose, when they when they know that purpose and when they're working in alignment with that purpose. And so I think that that did help me a lot. And also I was happy just talking to people and finding other people who also you know, were going through some of the things that I'd gone through in the past uh, and some people who were had made changes and had found happiness uh, themselves. I think that's another thing that in this time of COVID and we feel very separated from some people that are leading to anxiety is that's a lack of human contact. And I think just by engaging with others, we can get a lot more of that positivity and happiness back in our lives. Well, that's been a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation. So thank you very much for that, Chris. Thanks, Petra. It was great to, to come in and see you today. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.